Well, we are at the end. We come to the end of our study in 1 Peter. This is the last sermon in that series. Um, and we'll be taking a short series in, uh, on worship over the course of the next three weeks. And then following that, we'll be starting a series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so things to look forward to. But before we look forward, I just want to kind of bring this sermon series to a conclusion. And Peter does that. He, he wraps up this letter. Um, and in the final analysis, it really is like a drum beating out the marching rhythm. This whole letter has been like a drum beating out uh, a marching rhythm. And the march for which this drum beats is that march to glory. It's that pilgrim walk that we take in this life as we look forward to glory. And it is not an easy walk. It's not like a a jaunt. Rather, it's an arduous journey to a world that is hostile to Christ and his people. And so Peter gives us that steady beat that's grounded in the gospel hope and calls us to gospel living. And that's the march that we take. So our final passage continues and concludes the drumbeat of the gospel hope and gospel living. And my hope is that that doesn't stop, right? That that drumbeat continues even after we're done with this letter. That we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's gone before us and walk in faithfulness as his people in this world. So with that, let's turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 uh, to 14. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 14. It's found for you in your bulletins. Uh, You can turn with me there in your Bibles. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter of Peter's, this encouraging letter uh, that reminds us of your great gospel love for us. And your faithfulness, even in the midst of trials and suffering. Lord, encourage us with these last words, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little bit strange at the beginning here. I want to get a a few things out of the way. (laughs) Just kind of set them aside. Not because they are unimportant, um, but because I want to get at the heart uh, of the text. And and I feel like some of these things may be a bit of a distraction. And so I just kind of want, want to handle them. And that is this last little 
bit here, this, this final greeting. It's a feature, in, not just in Peter's letter here, but a feature in Paul's letters as well. He often sends personal greetings, and that's a lot of what's going on here. Um, Silvanus, likely Silas, was probably Peter's amanuensis. That means he was the one who said, all right, Peter, what are you saying? Okay, I'm writing it down. And he's probably also the one who went and took the letter uh, to um, the people in Asia Minor to whom Peter was writing. So that's the first person that I wanted to kind of set aside, just as an as a awareness of who he is. Um, the other one is she who was at Babylon. See, that, that one is kind of like, oh, what, is, you know, what does that mean? Um, there's some debate around this, but essentially I think the, the most reasonable explanation is that Peter here is uh, speaking of the church in Rome. Um, Babylon being the great city in the period of the exile. Remember, Peter is writing to the exiles of the dispersion, those who are believers, and he's using this metaphor of exile to talk about all of us who are in this world but who are not of it. And so Babylon represents the city, right, um, of that period of exile when the, when the um, people of God were exiled and living in dispersion. And so now he's saying, me and those of us in the church in Rome at this moment in time who are in Babylon, in Rome, are writing to you. Um, so, and they bring, your, they bring uh, uh, your greetings to you. And then finally is uh, Mark. Mark, we've seen him come up. Mark was probably one of Peter's main companions, uh, especially uh, one of the main people who helped him to write the gospel uh, of Mark. Uh, Peter himself was probably the apostle who was sort of behind that gospel, if you will. So Mark and Peter are also closely um, related. And then it finally fits, finishes with this great, great little thing. Greet one another with the kiss of love. So... Is that the call? We go around kissing each other? Um, yes, in this sense. We ought to be affectionate towards one another in the way that is culturally appropriate. As a New Englander, a firm handshake is a pretty nice way to greet somebody. You know? But I know I have friends who come from more, uh, I don't know, gregarious cultures, and a big hug and a kiss on the cheek is awesome a way to show affection, but we ought to be affectionate to one another. Right, so there you go, the holy kiss, the way to say, greet one another with that kind of affection that you have in Christ. So, setting that stuff aside, it's, it's all good. I'm going to come back to, in that little, at the very heart of my sermon, is what he says there in those last few verses, which is, the, this is the true grace of God, staying firm in it. So that's going to be the big the big idea, but I wanted to get some of those other pieces uh, a little bit out of the way. Um, so let's now move to the heart of the message. Why? Not why to the heart of the message. Why? Why is a difficult question, isn't it? The question why. As a student, it was the question that took our simple reports and made them into painstaking essays, right? It's, it's one thing to say who, what, when, where, how. Those are kind of nuts and bolts, right? We can answer with concrete things, facts. Um, but then the question of why comes up. And it's hard. 
At least it was for me as a student. I don't know. Um, It's hard in part because it's not always answerable, is it? We might draw tentative conclusions or make hypotheses or theorize, but often definitive answers are elusive, right? At least that's how I felt in school. I always I hated coming down like, this is the answer. I was always like, well, maybe, but... But that question, why, is all the more difficult when it comes to the problem of our suffering, isn't it? Nearly impossible sometimes for us to understand why suffering, particularly the reason why it's happening. We might give some big platitude or generalization and we'll come to some very important truths that are the answer. But those specifics are often unanswerable. And they can cause deep anxiety. And they can cause crises of faith. And how we address the question why, attending to our suffering, you know, regards to righteous suffering in particular, right? I think, I think it is good to ask the question um, why if, if the answer is because you were a fool or you did something foolish and were sinful in this thing. That, that issue, um, I think it's good to ask the question why. But, but I'm getting at those, those issues that we can't always address. And I'm saying the better question is how we address our suffering. How we kind of view it is the most important thing. Suffering often comes out of the blue and trying to make sense of it, we get lost in what ifs and theories. Why did this happen to me? And we can even begin to believe that God himself is cruel or that he isn't there at all And so make shipwrecks of our faith. How we address this why question matters deeply. And the Apostle Peter is concluding his letter by reminding us that we have a God who not only understands our suffering, but himself endured suffering. And not only that, but he is offering himself as a refuge and a strength in the midst of suffering. We address the why question concerning suffering, that is for righteousness sake, we'll put that little caveat, by bringing our suffering to God. By bringing it to Him. Peter says, stand firm in the true grace of God. Come to Him. Stand firm in Him. And we'll sort of unpack how we can do these things, but I want to consider this in, in this idea of standing firm in the true grace of God in three parts as we consider this problem of suffering in our life and that big question of why. Okay, So keeping those things in our mind, there are three things that I want to say. First is, stand firm in the true grace of God who exalts the humble. It's the first thing. Second thing that I want to look at is stand firm in the true grace of God 
being on guard. I think that's a fencing term, but we can use it, right? Being on guard. And finally, believer, you are anchored in the true grace of God in Christ Jesus. Those are the three places I want to go. First, stand firm in the true grace of God who exalts the humble. Verse 6 we have here, uh, and you don't have verse 5 unless you have your Bibles open, which is good. If you have your Bible open, you can look back at verse 5. But verse 6 flows right out of verse 5. Verse 5 said this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then here in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. This is, the, this is what I would call the drumbeat that I've been talking about in, in uh, uh, the, this little letter of 1 Peter. It's that suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Uh, suffering, then glory. And the verb here, to humble yourself, could be translated, be humbled. Now, that's a kind of a funny thing, because um, there was other ways Peter could have written it. He could have write, written it, humble yourself, and then put on the personal pronoun and said, humble yourself, you, humble yourself. But here he doesn't. He uses a passive verb, and he says, be humbled. Now, that's a funny way to put it. The previous verse, he had said, clothe yourself with humility. You do it. You put that clothing on. But here he's saying, be humbled. It's a passive thing. That's an interesting idea. It's kind of twofold. Clothing ourselves with humility and being humble. I think all of us have experienced what it's like to be humbled. I hope. It's a good thing. It really is. It doesn't feel like it, but it's good to be humbled. But here it says, be humbled under the mighty hand of God. In other words, God in some way is the one who is bringing about the humility. So how do we make sense of this? Clothe yourselves in humility or be humbled. Um, I think it's both an attitude which we can put on, but it's also something that happens to us. And we don't like it. We don't. I don't want to be humbled. We don't want to endure ridicule and shame. We don't want people to make fun of us for our faith. We don't want to be shut out from the world and be in that place of humility. And yet, this is exactly what Peter is saying is necessary. He's saying, be humbled. That's what this suffering does, is it breeds humility. It, it kind of pushes us to see ourselves in reality, to see ourselves in light of who we are, broken sinners, not well-loved in the world, full of all sorts of trials, who are utterly dependent on God. Completely dependent. And then Peter says that in due time or at the proper time, God will exalt you. Suffering, then glory. And our problem is with the then. Right? It's a distant thing. Right? It's, it's to say, oh, I'm looking up at this glory thing, but it seems very far away. 
And Lord, you're calling me to endure this suffering on the account of righteousness. You're calling me to be humble. And then you're saying, I will receive glory. But it just seems so far away. Well, how do we respond to being humbled? I think there's, there's two temptations uh, to this that are both born out of pride, mind you. Um, but there's two temptations First, one of our great temptations is to fight back. And Peter understood this, right? So Peter, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when they came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? Remember, Peter was already frustrated with Jesus earlier because Jesus said, I must suffer and die at the hands of of the leaders. And Peter says, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. And then when it actually comes to pass, when he's there that night after they had been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus warns them, watch and pray. And he had said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. All of that had transpired. And here he comes to this moment when the officials came to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? Does he humble himself? pulls out a sword, and he fights. Jesus said, that's not my way. Put the sword away, Peter. Heals the ear. But sometimes that's our temptation when we're being humbled, is to fight back, to get our right, to not be the person in the, in the low seat, but to put ourselves in the high seat, to fight. Um, there was a, an illustration that... Uh, uh, one of the commentators uh, gave, which I thought was really poignant. Um, back during uh, the period of the Reformation, uh, there was uh, a counter-Reformation. Uh, the, especially in a place like France, there was uh, persecution that the Huguenots, the, the, the French Reform folk, were facing. And they were, they were being slaughtered. And there was a group of them said, no, we're going to fight. And they took up the sword and they did exactly the same thing towards the others. Towards the Roman Catholics. And their witness was squashed, right? They thought, no, we have to fight. That's one of our temptations in pride. We want to fight back. Or we want to shrink back. That's the other option, right? Peter of course, does the same thing. After this situation and Jesus is arrested, he goes and he stands by a fire while Jesus is in being interrogated and he's sitting there by a fire and somebody says to him, wait a minute, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Does he pull out his sword? No. He denies Jesus three times. In our pride, our tendency is to fight or flight, isn't it? Like one or the other. I don't want to endure this suffering, this, this humbling thing that you've brought along the way. But I think Peter, after his own experience, gives a third way. The way to glory. The way of humility. He says to these poor Christians in Asia Minor, he says, Cast your anxieties on the Lord. This is a quote uh, from Psalm uh, 55. And this is a psalm, Psalm 55, a psalm of David who is crying out to the Lord because he is faced by his enemies. Now, this is a common theme for David, right? (laughs) He seems to always be constantly faced with his enemies. But these enemies were what you might call frenemies. Is that a fair statement? I don't know. 
They were his close friends who had turned on him. What a, what a horrible thing to experience. But hear David's words about this experience. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. I could then bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. And then a little later on, David says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn, they were drawn swords. So in the midst of this situation, David, faced by the rejection of his friends, he cries out to the Lord that the Lord would deal justly with his enemies. But in the end, David puts it in the hands of the Lord and he declares to all who would suffer similarly, and he says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You see, the third way is neither fight nor flight. The third way is to fall on our knees and into the arms of a God who cares for us. Friends, do you believe this? Do you believe that God cares for you? That even though he has seen fit for you to go through various trials, that it is for your good, for his glory, and by extension, your glory, right? He has promised that in him we will never be moved. His purpose in the crucible of suffering is to purify your faith and to show forth his own power and glory. And here's the thing. There is a then. This is the, this is the best part. There is a then. Verse 10 reminds us that our suffering is for a little while. Paul says it this way, which we read earlier. He said, for this light momentary affliction, this light Momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friend, do you believe this? Do you believe that you can take all your worries and anxieties and cast them before the Lord that He cares for you? Friend, the Lord has humbled you by humbling Himself first. about that. He humbles us by humbling himself. He, he goes before us. He comes down and descends and becomes incarnate, takes on our flesh and, and bears our burdens and carries our sin all the way to the cross. Why? So that he might exalt you and lift you up. You see, that then is so important. He loves you. He cares for you. And he's preparing you for glory. Stand firm in the true grace 
of God who exalts the humble. Secondly, stand firm in the true grace of God. Be on guard. Peter returns to the theme of watchfulness. He had brought this theme up in chapter 4, the previous chapter, when he was reminding believers that the end was not far off, that Jesus was coming again. And he was encouraging them to be sober-minded and self-controlled and to love one another. His, His emphasis was looking at life within the community of believers. But here in chapter 5, he returns to the same exhortation to be watchful and sober-minded. But instead of focusing on the relationships within the body, he is addressing these large underlying spiritual realities concerning suffering. Their adversary, the devil, the one who is there to accuse them, is prowling around like a lion. Now, our family has been watching the series uh, on Netflix called Our Planet. It is spectacular. Just throwing that out there. And yesterday, as a family, we watched one that had lions in it and jaguars. Um, And let me tell you, it was pretty crazy. The jaguar slowly crept. He was trying to come up on these, what are they called? Catabara? Camibaras? They look like giant rats, sort of rodents that swim by the river. Anyway, this jaguar was coming up and it was crawling along this branch because it had tried to get these these animals. I'm not going to try to say it again. But they kept swimming off into the water and he, he didn't have any chance. And he just kept trying. Finally, he crawls up onto this branch. And instead of one of those little creatures, there was an alligator. A caiman, sorry. I got I to get my animals down. Crept up and he just dropped like 15, 10 feet, 15 feet out of the sky on top of this crocodile and just grabbed it around the neck. Prowling around like a roaring lion or a quiet jaguar, whatever the case may be. But here's the the thing. There's a different picture for the Christians to whom Peter was writing. They had in their purview a Colosseum with lions. They had in their purview Christians and others who would go into that Colosseum and be devoured by the prowling lion. And Peter's saying, those lions might destroy your physical life, but there is nothing like this devil who could lead you away from eternal life. Wasn't this Job's goal? Wasn't this his whole aim? Job had the aim of taking Job and showing God that his faith was nothing, that if he just had a little more suffering, if he lost everything, he would curse God and die. And that's exactly what his wife suggested Job to do. This is the evil one's intent. And so Peter calls us to be sober-minded. To not be sober-minded is to, have, is to not have a realistic view of matters, right? It's not to see the world as it is. There are two possible ways. There's probably more, but it, in terms of suffering, you can think of it in a couple frames. One is to pretend that suffering isn't suffering, 
This is not to be sober-minded, to pretend suffering isn't suffering, to act like everything is, is good, right? Oh, I'm fine. Everything is okay. As your life kind of slowly crumbles apart and you just kind of shove it all under the, the proverbial rug and you don't deal with it. And what ends up happening, it erodes all that sorrow, all that pain, all that suffering erodes away because everything is not okay. The pain is real. Eventually, that house of cards may crumble and you will be tempted to abandon God altogether. That is not being sober-minded. Reminds me of that line from Dar Williams. Uh, you know, I think it's in Iowa, one of her songs, and she says, we like to live in a world of safe people. But then we go into our houses and burn. We often do that. We try to just pretend things aren't the way they are. But the other option is, is to think the other way. To, to, to think that suffering is the strongest and most powerful thing in your life and that it is all-consuming, that God is not present, that He is not powerful, that there is not a then. There is only this. And that leads to that accuser, that liar, to come to you and say, and it's all your fault. It's all your fault. God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not present. He's not bringing you to a glory. There's nothing. It's just this suffering. To be sober-minded is to see suffering for what it is. It's a trial. It makes us anxious. It highlights the injustice of the world. And the evil one wants to destroy our trust in the Lord and lead us to despair. That's his goal. But God is still God. He is the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. And he loves us and he cares for us. You see, we we need that, what I've tried to paint for you as a horizon of hope. To have that view of eternity that, that says there is something beyond the suffering, that God's purposes are in this, that he is bringing me home to glory safely. And he says, come, stand firm in me, come to me, take your anxieties and cast them on me. Resists the evil one. It is for us to be sober-minded and vigilant is to see reality for what it is, to see the devil and our adversary for who he is and his aims, but ultimately it's to see God for who he is, as the one who loves us and cares for us and in whom we dwell secure. Peter goes on to encourage us in that battle by reminding us that we're not alone in it. We're not alone. What a glorious thing. You can look around at each person sitting next to you and say, I am not alone. And while your suffering is unique, each one of you face suffering in different ways and suffering for righteousness sake in particular in different ways. Nevertheless, you share in that suffering. You share in the sufferings of Christ, but we share in one another's sufferings. Uh, it was brought up at our community group that one of the, one of the great ways in which we can 
kind of get out of our overwhelming sense of woe is me is to start helping others who are suffering, to come alongside them and gain that perspective that we are children of God bearing the marks of Christ in our suffering. You're not alone. Not just can we look here amongst ourselves, but we can go all around the world. We can go on places like Voice of Martyrs. We can pray for those who are facing life itself and death itself. We can look back across time and history and see all the faithful witnesses who've gone before us and give praise and thanksgiving to God that He gave grace to them and He gives grace to us as well in helping us endure. God loves us. He cares for us. He is faithful and He is leading us home to glory. You are not alone. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, lay aside every sin and weight that hinders us Looking to Jesus, run the race with endurance. Finally, you are standing firm in the grace of God. Peter, in his usual fashion, goes back to the gospel. He has all these exhortations that will go back and remind us of the gospel, that will go back to exhortations. It's just how he, he does it. But look at this in, in verse 10. Verse 10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace... The God of all grace. There's no other source. There's no other fount. There's no other place. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What, what, a, what a glorious picture. Um, it's as if the Peter, Peter took all these words, and they all, they all kind of are in a constellation together, if you will. They're all words that get at the same concept, that what he is doing is, even in the midst of suffering, he is grounding you in himself. He's setting you on him, the solid rock upon which we can never be moved, from which we can never be moved. He's saying, I'm setting you there. And this is not a place where you just lick your wounds, but this is a place where the Lord heals and restores your wounds. This is a place where you are being transformed and changed. We go all the way back to chapter 1. Do you remember chapter 1? Um, chapter 1 puts it beautifully in this picture of suffering when he says, Though now for a little while, if necessary... You've been grieved by various trials. That the tested genuineness of your faith. What is that? The tested genuineness of your faith. Uh, More precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That suffering is a crucible. It's the place that all the dross, everything that is not faith is being stripped away. And your faith is being beautified. You're being drawn in to God Himself. That's the purpose of suffering. You have suffered now for a little while. But the God of all grace who's called you, whose eternal glory will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Now, this is, a, this is a future glory, but then, right, we look forward. Yes, I know, I know in heaven I'm going to have all these things, but it's now that's hard. But the way it's written, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, indicates that it's not just a future thing, but it's something he's, on, he's doing ongoing. It's the process by which you are being drawn in and set now, as you rest in Christ, as that suffering comes and as you cast your anxieties and burdens on the Lord and you come to Him, you are being restored. You are being confirmed. You are being established. And you are being strengthened for the walk. Where does that leave us? This is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God that In Him, we have a salvation that is kept in heaven for us, ready to be revealed at the last time. In Him, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're being held secure. So where does that leave us? Where where does that leave us as Christians as we think about, okay, I know I'm suffering. I know I'm casting my anxieties on Him. I know that I'm coming to Him and resting on Him. Where does that leave us? I only know one place that it leaves us. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He alone receives all glory, honor, and praise. Why? Because who can take the pain and sorrow and suffering of this world and transform it to glory? Nothing. Nothing in this world can do that but the blood of Jesus Christ. All praise and honor and glory to him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Uh, We confess that we often are tempted to run and hide. We're often tempted to take arms ourselves. But Lord, you have given us yourself. You have called us into your presence, into your glory. And you've said, set your stake here. Trust in me. Rest in me. So Lord, help us to do that in humility. To recognize you as the King of kings and Lord of lords as our Savior. Oh, Lord, we ask for justice to relieve any suffering that we might have. But, Lord, in the midst of it, establish us, strengthen us, encourage us. Lord, give us hope. And, Lord, take away all the dross, all the self Strength, all the things that keep us clinging to our own pride, but help us to humble ourselves before you. We need your help to do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.